Hi, I'm Louise. And I'm John. And you're listening to the DCIF podcast, Changing World, New Opportunities, an investment podcast designed for members of the DC community. We'll be chatting with asset managers who are all passionate about DC and getting investment right for the members. Investments in DC have changed a lot, so we'll be helping you, the listener, to stay up to date with the latest, from real estate to alternatives, the challenges of trusteeship through to addressing climate change. This first series will focus on the changing world we find ourselves in and the exciting investment opportunities for DC plans. Keep up to date with our work at dcif.co.uk, where you can sign up to receive our research and get invitations to our launches. You can also follow us on Twitter at DCIF underscore UK and on LinkedIn, where we are the Defined Contribution Investment Forum. Fantastic. Let's get on with the show. Hi, John. How are you? Very well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good, thank you, on this sunny, frosty morning. It feels a world away from Rebecca Myatt's world. Our latest guest is based in Sydney. So we spoke to her evening, her time, seven o'clock our time. And she was sitting with this amazing, I think, like window behind her. And we were looking out at a very warm blue sky. And I think she was wearing a T-shirt. And um, it was December, I think, here, John, right? I think it was only about 20 degrees Celsius difference between where she was recording from and certainly where I was recording from uh, up north of the border. (laughs) Yeah, totally insignificant. We weren't at all jealous. No, definitely not. Definitely not. So Rebecca Mayat is a portfolio manager for the global listed infrastructure team at First Sentier Investors. Uh, so we chatted to Rebecca about the fund that she manages, which is the First Sentier Responsible Listed Infrastructure Fund, which was super interesting, wasn't it, John? Well, yeah, because earlier on in the series, we've so I've had a chat to um, Janet Henderson about infrastructure, but as part of their wider alternatives fund, and there it was getting exposure to infrastructure through investment trusts and the actual underlying assets themselves. Whereas with Rebecca's fund, it's slightly different. It's actually looking at the the equity of the companies that run some of these types of um, assets or involved in infrastructure much more broadly. So it's a different take on on infrastructure and. So given the general interest within infrastructure for UK pension schemes, we thought it was interesting to explore it from a slightly different angle. And clearly with infrastructure, there's lots of ways that you can integrate ESG into these types of assets or the companies themselves. So it's a really fascinating way to to look at it in a slightly different way. Definitely. I really enjoyed hearing about how Rebecca engages with the companies that she invests in. And I don't know, I feel like property and infrastructure, you don't always think of as being sort of ESG asset classes. You know, they don't naturally lend themselves to ESG, but Rebecca really showed me that they absolutely do. And it's amazing the kind of ways that they engage and the sorts of changes they can make. It was really inspiring. Um, And I thought, wow, what a great, what a great job Rebecca has. How interesting. Yeah, Yeah, very passionate about what she does, which hopefully will come through in the, in the recording itself. Yeah, definitely. So if you're interested in investing in infrastructure and you want to hear more about ESG in the context of infrastructure, I think this will be a really good episode to listen to. So over to Rebecca. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. It's so nice to have you this morning for us. Late afternoon, early evening for you. Thanks for having me. How are you? Good, thank you. It's nice and sunny over here. So enjoying some Australian sunshine. You're in Sydney, right? Yes, correct. How long have you lived in Sydney? I think it's been about 18 years now. Oh, wow. Amazing. So a very long time. It's hard to get rid of the Northern yeah. accent, though. <laughs> well, it's funny because I've got another friend who's been over in Sydney about as long as you have, and she sounds 
fully Australian now. We just had a little pre-chat and I had like a couple of little Australian moments, but you still sound like one of us. <laughs> it's definitely a bit of a blend after so long. Well, we could probably do a whole podcast on Australian super funds, but you're actually here today to chat to us about infrastructure, which is really exciting. We wondered if you might be able to start just by talking to us a bit about infrastructure investing at First MTA and what kind of characteristics you look for as investors. We're a listed equity, so we're investing in the shares of companies that own and operate infrastructure assets around the world. The way that we define listed infrastructure is really around four main characteristics. So that's barriers to entry, so monopolistic characteristics, pricing power, so that's the ability to increase prices at or above inflation, predictable cash flow, and sustainable or structural growth. When you're thinking about different sectors, you should think about things like toll roads, airports, railways, utilities, renewables, water and waste, and communications infrastructure, such as mobile towers and data centers. And then we're talking a bit about responsible listed infrastructure today. Can you tell us a bit about how you approach responsible listed infrastructure? How we think about responsible listed infrastructure is really the marriage between listed infrastructure and socially responsible investing. So what we're looking for is companies that can contribute to or benefit from sustainable development. The fund itself has kind of appealed to a broad group of investors who want a commitment towards an environmental or social goal, as well as a financial risk-adjusted return. Just um, going back to the sectors you mentioned right at the very start, just wondered how that's evolved say, over the last 10 years? Because I imagine data centers didn't really exist as a concept or might have been very much in their infancy 10 years ago. So I just wondered how infrastructure or listed infrastructure has changed over 5, 10 years. So over the 15 years that I've been part of the listed space, we've actually seen some companies come into the investment universe and some companies move out. Over that 15 years, the actual focus list of companies that we've looked at has remained broadly stable. So you're right, data centers and renewables are actually two of the more recent sectors. And when I say renewables, renewables have always been there, but just standard alone, pure play renewable companies. So we've definitely seen a number of companies spin off their renewable assets into a separate vehicle. We've seen new IPOs in that space. We've seen the data centers break out as well. Although we do see the data centers almost coming back and merging with the mobile towers. We have had some, I guess, fluidity in the sectors. And even years ago, we used to invest in a lot of port companies. But then we realized most of the ports were actually SOEs. And as a minority shareholder, you didn't really have many rights in those companies. So we actually turned off ports as we did satellites. So we saw sustainable growth basically going into decline for the satellites. And therefore, it didn't really meet our definition of listed infrastructure. And we turned off that sector a number of years ago. And just thinking about that a bit more broadly, you might go into this in a bit more detail later on, but in terms of the definition of infrastructure, is it just the end bit of the infrastructure or is it the supply chain into the infrastructure? Just wondering where the line stops in terms of what you consider to be an infrastructure equity holding. So if you think about those four characteristics that I mentioned at the beginning, that is really the characteristics that you get in those hard assets. So if you think about manufacturers, if you think about upstream, there's more competition. So it doesn't really meet that barriers to entry. They don't really have pricing power because competition whittles that away. So we're actually thinking about the assets themselves that are generally regulated or contracted in nature. 
and we wouldn't own either side of that. So imagine we wouldn't own a standalone retailer. We wouldn't own a standalone generator or, you know, merchant generator. So it really is the hard assets in that middle portion, if you will. Going back to DC schemes, you see them so far using this infrastructure in their portfolios. And I'm interested in obviously the Australian example and whether you're seeing changes elsewhere in the world as well. And I guess particularly in the sort of fast developing UK DC scheme world. Listed infrastructure is really been used by clients in various different ways. If you think about initially, it was really used as a defensive, low volatility equity. And that's because in down markets, it generally has a beta of 0.6 and in up market has a beta of 0.8. We then saw it really expanded to be used as a source of income. As we saw declining bond yields, the relative appeal of its growing dividend stream came to the fore. We've also seen listed infrastructure form part of a real assets segment. And that's because the nature of these long life hard assets and the ability to offer the insulation from inflation. Some have used it as a diversified liquid lower fee alternative to unlisted infrastructure. And then more recently, we've seen a growing number of clients use the listed infrastructure space to achieve net zero. And that's because as we think about net zero, you know, infrastructure is required at every step of that pathway for it to be achievable. Just thinking about source of income, low volatility, how has the asset class performed year to date? There's obviously been a tough time across bond markets and selected equity markets. Just wondered, have the infrastructure assets been impacted by the higher bond yields or is the actual structural story about infrastructure dominated that more? I guess it's really around what's driving bond yields. When we think about inflation, we don't get really worried about higher inflation because when we think about the asset class, around 70% of the investment universe has some form of inflation pass-through. And that can come in a number of ways. So it can be that the company earns a real regulated return where inflation is a direct pass-through to the consumer, or it can come in the form of pricing power. If you have a look at our freight railway companies, they operate in a duopolistic market structure. So what we've seen is as CPI has increased, they've actually been able to increase their prices to consumers. Similarly, in some of the waste companies, they spent many years trying to get their contracts to a basket of waste indexation. And so what we've seen as US CPI has gone up, their pricing has been able to increase as well. Naturally, there's the other portion, which is GDP-sensitive portion of infrastructure. And clearly, when we're thinking about rising bond yields, these are long-duration assets that will have an impact to the valuation part of that. So when we're thinking about recessionary environments, there is a portion of infrastructure that is clearly more GDP-sensitive. So that's the energy midstream that we don't invest in with the responsible fund, and that's also the freight railway companies. But when you think of infrastructure relative to other asset classes, we are more defensive within a recessionary environment as well. So so you've got infrastructure universe as your starting point. What does the responsible infrastructure universe sort of narrow down to? Just wondering what the opportunity set becomes once you think about it with much more of a focus on responsible investing. The responsible listed infrastructure fund is slightly more concentrated than the global listed infrastructure fund that we run because... We're looking for companies that stack up both on a value and a quality basis, but then we're asking for this extra thing. We're asking for these companies to contribute to or benefit from sustainable development. There's naturally a little bit of a narrowing there, but what you do find is that as more companies 
push towards net zero as more companies take their social license to operate and think about their employees and their customers and incorporate those things to try and push towards sustainable development, then there's also a number of companies that slowly move into being investable for us. But you're definitely right that there are a few companies, even a sector like the energy midstream, that just wouldn't meet our definition. Because when we think about the pathway to net zero, it wouldn't make sense for me to talk about electrification of the transportation sector, but then say the oil pipeline, which the largest customer of that is road transport, is actually okay. I'm talking two different sides of the coin there. So that's probably the biggest narrowing would be the exclusion of the midstream space. And then the second would be just in terms of the utilities and how they're performing in terms of their decarbonisation paths. It really struck me, you talked a few minutes ago about investors using list infrastructure as part of their pathway to net zero. And that's so interesting because it's definitely not something you kind of associate necessarily with infrastructure. So tell us a bit more about listed infrastructure's role in delivering net zero. I'd, I'd love to hear a bit more about that. I mean, obviously, you just touched on it a bit. I think about net zero in a really simplistic way. If you think about the three largest emitting sectors today, that's the power generation sector, the transportation sector, and the industrial sector. If you think about power generation, that sector has been decarbonizing over the last decade. And we anticipate that that will continue over the next decade. And that's really around investing in renewables and decommissioning old inefficient coal plants. We're investing in the utilities that are doing that. The second portion on the transportation sector, we actually have a pathway to decarbonizing that, which is electrifying it. But if you think about it, this is a sector that's never been electrified before. It needs new generation to come online and new renewables to come online to enable that to happen. And then secondly, for every euro of renewables you put, you need about 70 cents worth of investment into the network. So that's the transmission and distribution networks, because we now want to have all these EV charging stations located almost where our petrol stations are today. And around 75% of the cost of those charging stations is in the networks behind the charging station. It's not in the charging station itself. So again, we're asking our utilities to reinforce the grid and also to connect new power generation sources to the grid. And then when you think about the industrial sector and you boil that down, what it really means is how the hell do we get off gas? And I think what we've all seen especially over the last year, that just saying we can turn the gas taps off is not possible. And it's definitely not possible in an affordable manner. So remember when we're targeting the sustainable development goals, there's a big portion of the clean energy part that says affordable clean energy part. And that means that it doesn't push people into a cost of living crisis to enable this clean energy outcome. Decarbonizing off gas is much more complex And the emerging technologies such as hydrogen are just not economical today to do at scale. So what we need is all of these utilities investing in all these different types of technologies that can take the place of gas so that the cost curves for those technologies can come down. Similarly to what we saw in onshore wind, what we saw in solar and what we're seeing now in batteries as well. If we're actually serious about hitting net zero and hitting it by 2050 or sooner, then we've got to tackle these three big sectors, the largest. Because if we don't do that, then we can talk about smaller portions of the pie. But if we don't tackle those three large sectors, we are not going to get there. And you can see by 
breaking that down that we literally don't get there without investment in infrastructure. And all of this investment basically is providing that structural growth for infrastructure. So it's not cyclical growth, it's structural growth in delivering on that net zero target. Thank you. That's so interesting. I'm really learning a lot this morning. And it's not even half past eight English time yet. So thank you. This is a great start to my day. Rebecca, I'm really interested in engagement as well and engagement's role in this process. We've talked a bit about engagement so far in this series across a variety of asset classes. But how does it work when it comes to infrastructure? How receptive do you find the more traditional utility providers, for example, when it comes to reaching net zero? And how does that process work? So engagement is an absolute core of our investment process. So our team has done over 500 company visits a year. And when we say that, we're not just meeting with companies, we're meeting with regulators, we're meeting with politicians, we're meeting with competitors, we're meeting with suppliers. We're trying to get a really broad picture of what's going on from various different angles rather than, oh, the CEO presented and his word is the truth. You're trying to really build a picture through all these engagements. Companies have been very receptive to our engagement through the years. And I think that's down to a few factors. We are long-term investors, number one. We've been on the register of these companies for 5, 10, or even some companies, 15 years. We're also specialists. So all we do is infrastructure. When we're going to these companies and we're engaging, we're coming from a place of knowledge. And we're also talking about best practice of what we've seen globally, because we have the fortune of being able to invest globally. We've also been able to invest, you know, not just individually, but collaboratively. I sit on a working group for a couple of companies through Climate Action 100. And that's just a different way to tackle it as well. You know, you can tackle it from both angles. Don't forget, we do have our proxy voting power. We have the ability to write to the board and share our views on how they should think about these things. Ultimately, we can escalate that and use our proxy voting power. And as a team, we've been highly active in using that right because we do feel that that is not just a tick-the-box exercise. It's our right to show how we think a company should be moving forward. I find that these management teams are receptive to the things you're putting forward. And I suppose it's not just you, it's lots of other asset managers as well. And within, I suppose, a related question is, are there certain subsectors of infrastructure that are more receptive than others? I think overall, from those reasons that I've explained, people are willing to listen to your views on things. And in actual fact... We've had the reverse happen where we've actually had companies come to us and say, what do you think about this? We're clearly showing in our directions that we're moving towards net zero, but maybe we can talk to you about what you've seen in other people's remuneration policies. How would you view this if we put this up for you to vote on? So we've actually had really good two-way engagement with a number of companies. The reality is, is that if you have a company that is not going to speak to you and not going to engage with you, it's probably not a company that we can invest in in this fund because we are trying to affect change as well and deliver upon those sustainable development goals. When you sit down and think about a particular investment, and you mentioned you're a long-term investor, long-term could be three, five, ten. Do you have specific goals that you, and this is you as an individual investor, want to see that company deliver for you to be willing to continue to hold them for the long-term, like milestones effectively? I'm not a believer in having a management team put a 2050 target out there that they're not going to be around to deliver. What I like to see is that that 2050 target is broken down into steps through time. So we can actually understand how they're going to achieve this net zero goal. 
it's helpful when companies do get its science-based target initiative ratified. That's helpful, but clearly that's not available for some of the gas companies. I think when you think about a utility and the profile of decarbonization, the biggest bang for your buck is when they decommission a coal plant. So when you think about their decarbonization pathway, it's not linear. It's in a stepped change. If you think they're adding all these renewables so that then they can decommission a gigawatt of coal. So what you see is them adding all these renewables, their carbon footprint not really changing. But then when they take away the coal plant, there's a big step change. We're looking at that from the asset level and trying to understand, okay, you've got these four coal plants that are contributing the most to your footprint. Let's talk about the pathway to how they get decommissioned, how much investment needs to be made so you don't have blackouts, so that you have replacement generation there for customers as well. And you just talk to companies about the pathway and understand how they see these assets changing over time. And majority of regulated utilities also file with their regulator integrated resource plans. So they're already talking to their regulator in the long term, five to 10 years, about how they see their generation shifting through time. So you actually have more visibility than you would think. But what we do like to see is that 2050 target being brought forward to short and medium term targets, and ideally going into executive remuneration as well. So I think that not just carbon, but a range of sustainability factors should find their way into executive remuneration. Because I think what gets remunerated gets done. It's important that they've got their eyes on the prize as well. And how optimistic do you feel about meeting 2050 targets at the moment? You're so embroiled in this world day to day. How positive do you feel about it? Well, for the utilities that we're investing in, if you think about the portfolio as a whole, around 90, 95% of the emissions are coming from the utility space. So when we're really talking about net zero, the bulk of it is going to be in those utilities. One of the things that I'm really positive on was the Inflation Reduction Act that we got in the United States. So I think that's a game changer for the decarbonization in the US. And you actually even saw that in the papers with Europe saying, oh, hang on. We don't want this investment to go from Europe to the US because they've got such a great scheme for decarbonization. So that IRA really gave me hope for net zero being achievable. And there's a couple of things in that that I think were really helpful. So the first was the extension of the tax credits. So that gives investors and companies certainty over putting dollars in the ground in the US for new solar, for new wind. And what was also included in that was a tax credit for standalone batteries. So now I think you're going to see a lot of energy storage happen in the US. But the one part that I really did like was also that you got a subsidy for hydrogen. If you think about all the things that we've talked about, and I've said that that gas portion is really difficult to actually decarbonize, the whole fact that they've now got a subsidy for hydrogen has given confidence for some companies, such as NextEra Energy, to actually come out with a real zero target, not a net zero target where some people are buying offsets or whatever, a real zero target. And I think that's what we should be aiming for is the real zero, not the net zero. So that inflation reduction, I thought was an absolute game changer. And from a portfolio position, we're very confident that this is going to underpin the structural growth drivers and hence the structural earnings drivers for these utilities for decades. Brilliant. That is everything I was going to ask you. And I think it's nice to finish on a positive note. But John, I can see you were bursting with another question. <laughs> I've got loads of questions. Not sure there's <laughs> any questions. 
I can't guarantee this will be a great one to end on, but thinking back more to the fund that you run and more generally, if people are looking to invest in this type of vehicle, what's the sort of geographic split like? Because I think mm. you mentioned a few different names there, ones from the US, ones from the UK and a few others. I was wondering, because if, say, investors are going to put this alongside core passive fund, I guess they'd be interested to know what geographical allocation having an allocation to this would actually result in. So maybe just a couple of minutes on the sorts of names, how you benchmark, how you decide where to invest, etc. So we don't have any geographical targets, so to speak. And the reason for that is because it really just depends where the companies are listed. So for example, in the US, you don't find any listed airports or toll roads, but you do find predominantly all the freight railway companies. It really just depends on where the assets are. It would be a fair observation that there is a good chunk of the portfolio, call it like 60-70% in the US. And that's because we have the large cap mobile towers there, we have the freight railway companies there, and we have a significant amount of US utilities. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. That's been so interesting. I feel like we're all going to learn a lot listening to this. I certainly have. I think infrastructure has a really unfair reputation as this quite traditional sector, but actually talking to you today has made me learn that there's so much going on and it's great to hear your passion about reaching true zero. And wow, I'm going to go and read about true zero now. I feel like I've read a lot about net zero, but certainly reading about offsets at the moment in the press, it feels as though perhaps we need to be aiming higher and doing more. It's great to hear the role that infrastructure is playing in that journey. So thanks so much for taking the time, especially your evening to chat to us. Much appreciated. No problem. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Changing World New Opportunities, brought to you by the DC Investment Forum. Head over to dcif.co.uk, where you can read all the research the DCIF publishes, follow the DCIF on Twitter and LinkedIn, and subscribe to this show on your favourite podcasting platform. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Changing World New Opportunities.